Thank you for listening to Rearview Mirror Chronicles. To send me an email, please use rearviewmirrorchronicles at gmail.com and to send me a message on WhatsApp, plus 6016-425-6301. The year is 48 BC. Your name is Bayak of Siwa, Magi of Egypt, protector of the weak and defender of the innocent, and you have a job to do. Your mission is to meet your wife, Ela, an agent of the exiled Cleopatra in perhaps the most celebrated building in all Alexandria, the Great Library. And as you step inside, the sheer spectacle takes your breath away. The marble pillars, the stone statues and mosaic floors, the vast effigy of the god Serapist, Greek scholars by their hundreds huddled at their desks, and above them all, the bookcases lined with more than half a million scrolls and parchments. Here before your awestruck eyes is the learning of the entire ancient world, with a copy of every book ever written, from Aristotle to Socrates to Homer and Herodotus, And above the shelves in Greek is an inscription. Of this, it says, is the place that will cure your soul. I absolutely love that. Hello and welcome to Rearview Mirror Chronicles, a podcast that takes serious history and makes it a little more fun. My name is Keith Hockton. I'm a public historian, author and broadcaster. The topic today is the Great Library of Alexandria, the greatest library to have ever been built. Or was it? Look, it's no secret. I love books and I'll search out libraries no matter where I am in the world. And I do that whenever I'm traveling. So this is a podcast that I've been dying to do for some time. In fact, it was a toss up between this and Herodotus. And it was a close second, I can tell you, because I'm dying to tell this story and his story, but I'll tell his story another time. So the introduction that I read, dear listeners, is your first sight of the Great Library of Alexandria in the video game Assassin's Creed Origins. And they actually got many, many historians to help them develop that game. And to be fair, this is the image of their library that you will find in most books about the life of Cleopatra and the age of the Ptolemies. But I think that Assassin's Creed deals with myth and archetype as well as hardcore historical research. They've done a very good job. And I think that the Great Library, the Great Library of Alexandria, is most potent as a myth in a way that the fact that it it actually hasn't survived. There's no trace of it that ever remains. No trace of it to say that it actually existed, but we do know that it did. The very fact that all the texts have vanished. You know, I'll be talking about how and why they might have vanished a little bit later during the show. And I think it's that that enables it to endear in the imagination as a kind of embodiment of, I guess, ultimate learning a repository of everything, every book that has ever been compiled. And I think it kind of feeds into all kinds of fantasy. So there's a wonderful short story written by Jorge Luis Borges, the great Argentinian short story writer. And he talks about the Library of Babel, which contains not just every book that's ever been written, but every possible book that might be written in the future, every conceivable permutation. And the whole universe has become a library. 
And I think that kind of fantasy ultimately derives from this kind of mythic quality that the Library of Alexandria has actually come to have. And his library is kind of, well, it's actually one of the models for the, the library in The Name of the Rose, El Nombre de la Rosa. What an amazing book. And the, the idea of the, the library in that movie is of the great library of Alexandria. I mean, it's a classic thing in science fiction. And you actually get it in things like, you know, in programs like Doctor Who and, and things. You know, these images of kind of vast libraries, you know, spreading spreading across entire planets with all the knowledge of the world. And I suppose to some extent you could say that the Internet or the ambition of, of actually Wikipedia is, is exactly that. Or that actually the dream that emerged in the enlightenment of, say, you know, developing a universal library. I wanted to do this episode because I'm heading to the British Library next week, and the British Library is actually listed as number one ahead of the Library of Congress as the best library in the world. So the British Library was actually set up 50 years ago, but it draws on, you know, of course, you know, collections from the, the British Museum, and then before that, other private collections. And it is, in a way, I guess an embodiment of that dream that we associate with the Library of Alexandria to essentially be universal in the scale of learning that it offers. So the British Library actually offers 117 million different items. Get your head around that. You know, they're either printed, digital, you know, archives of books and manuscripts and journals and everything, you know, works of art, patents. And it has objects that are thousands of years old. You know, it, it, <laughs> it effectively has tweets that were sent out, you know, a few hours earlier. And I think that libraries like the British Library, the Library of Cong Congress or Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris and so on, they, they stand as a line of descent from, not as in dissenters, but descend, descending from the, the Library of Alexandria herself. I can remember one time I went into the British Library and there was a there was a woman with a desk sitting directly in front of me all by herself. And it looked very kind of Harry Potterish. You know, she looked like she was a, a teacher at Hogwarts. Her hair was tied in a bun. She was very primly dressed and she sat there with a with a very large smile on her on her face. And as I approached to walk past, she said to me, would you like to pick up one of these objects? So I wandered over to the desk and on the desk were numerous tiny objects. And it was actually difficult to tell how old they actually were. But she quite openly offered anything and any anything and everything that was on the desk for me to touch. And what I picked up and I was feeling was a very small urn, um, probably about two or three inches in height, definitely Greek um, or, or of Greek origin. And I was feeling it and getting a sense of it. And then she said to me, isn't it amazing? You know, that object that you have in your hand is over a thousand years old. <laughs> and I was thinking of the term, you know, you break it, you buy it. And I very quickly, gently put the object down. But that's what the British Library offers. It offers fantasies and allows them to become reality. And I think it's that fantasy that came to obsess people in Europe in the Renaissance and then run through to the Enlightenment that kind of explains the existence, the existence of all these universal libraries, don't you think?
You know, I actually wish the idea of the National Library and the idea of a single repository of learning that contains all learning was actually true. You know, most nations have have their national libraries, and I suppose all of these things derive ultimately from this idea, from this platonic idea of a ideal of a library. Ironically, given that the Library of Alexandria must have had the works of Plato. But of course, that then raises the question of where did the people who founded the Library of Alexandria, where did they get their idea from? Is the idea of constructing libraries as old as civilization itself? And in one sense, it does seem to be. And I think that the moment that writing is actually developed... The instinct to actually collect texts and assemble them in one place seems to have been pretty universal. So in Egypt, where they actually manufacture papyrus, which is the the writing material of the time, which is what the scrolls in the Library of Alexandria are written on, and of course where they're kept, you know, the priest seems to have used before this, used temples as repositories for scrolls that are connected with a specific cult. I mean, none of them have survived because papyrus uh, disintegrates. It actually disintegrates even while you're reading it. But in the Near East, they use clay. And if clay gets fired, it remains almost undestroyable. So archaeologists, when they dig up these ancient cities, you know, across the Near East, have every so often found these incredible depositories of vast numbers of clay tablets. And I think the oldest is in the place called Ebla, which is about 30 miles southwest of Aleppo in Syria, and which actually dates back to about 2300 BC. And of course, there's the great capital of the Hittite Empire, which is 17th to 13th centuries BC. I mean, a huge amount of text was found there. Absolutely invaluable, not just for informing us about the Hittite Empire, but about the Near East in general at that very specific time. The Assyrians are actually famous as a militaristic imperial people, very prone to completely wiping out cities, but they actually seem to have adored libraries, quite the juxtaposition from you know what, how you actually think of them. So actually, the oldest library whose founder we know was founded in 1100 BC by the Syrian king with the splendid name of Tigalath-Pileser. I always thought that would be a great name for a cat. But the most famous Assyrian library is the one founded by Ashurbanipal. He was notorious among his subject peoples for his oppressive militarism, not surprising. But interestingly, he's depicted and shown with a kind of a kind of a pen tucked into his belt as an emblem of his ability to not only read and write, but also as someone uh, as an academic. And so There were something like 30,000 clay tablets in that found in his city. And most of them were this kind of prophetic writings. You know, they were omens and spells for warding off evil spirits and that kind of thing. But there were a few kind of classic literary texts as well, of which Giglamesh is the most famous and the oldest epic. I mean, an incredibly important archive. And that also seems to have had a cataloging system, and it seems to have had librarians who get, (laughs) and this made me laugh when I was doing this research, they actually get stressed out about the the, the clay tablets that are being stolen. So, you know, you think in the the three to five thousand odd years, nothing's actually changed. 
So there are all these kind of warnings in, in this library, and we know this because they've been recorded. Basically, things that they say things like, you know, if you steal one of the clay tablets, the spirits will come and get you. Or, you know, May Nabu, who was obviously one of their gods, decrees your destruction. <laughs> That's one of my favorite ones. So on these libraries, there is an argument that civilization, which is obviously identified with urbanism, and that part of it is control. I mean, you have a monopoly of violence. That's one of the elements of having a state, but also a monopoly of information, control of information, of records, of law, of regulations and codes, of property ownership. And to have all that, you actually need a library of some description to cater for it. You need, you need a place, a single repository where all that stuff can be stored, where the king can actually go or the emperor can go and find out what we did last time or what the king did before him or what the laws are on a certain aspect that you're ruling on. I mean, it has to be written down somewhere. It can't just be orally passed down. And so a lot of these libraries, so the, as an example, the text foundry at Persepolis, which gets burned by Alexander the Great, these are to do with the administration of the empire. Very often, that's what they're to do with. So the library of Ashurbanipal seems to have been definitely set up by the king himself, for sp specifically for those reasons. And he has a personal stake in it. But this seems to be because the king has a responsibility to the dimension of the supernatural in this particular case. So he's actually employing all kinds of people who can actually forecast or foretell the future, you know, ward off evils from, you know, both the king and the empire. And that is basically, I think, what his library was all about. And this is the amazing thing. These libraries are set up for very specific purposes. It's kind of a, a reference. His library is kind of a reference library for diviners, for soothsayers. So even the epics are probably there because they have divinitary roles. So it's not quite like the dream of the universal library that we have in, in the modern world. And it's also, I think, kind of slightly different from the ambitions that the kings of Egypt who found, you know, who founded the library of Alexandra actually have. And I think to probably get a handle on what those ambitions are, and the way in which in which the the library of Alexandria does seem to have been something quite different from, say, the libraries of Ashurbanipal in the Near East that preceded them has to be put into context. Because actually, cultural artifacts like libraries are expressions of the culture that think that they're worth founding and maintaining. And that's actually really important. So the question then is, does this then give me the opportunity to talk about Alexander the Great, a great friend of Review Mirror Chronicles? So if you thought that this was all going to be about boring books and clay tablets and, you know, scrolls and things, you're greatly mistaken, because I'm now going to be talking about one of the world's great conquerors, if not the greatest conqueror ever. And I want to do it for a number of reasons, but I think we all have an inner Alexander. I love Alexander. I love what he created and what he did. And I'm often asked where I'd most like to go back to in history. And I think it would actually be Alexandria at its height. It's this syncretic place. It's partly Greek, partly Egyptian. It's actually founded by Alexander himself. I mean, that's the legend, at least. 
But I actually don't think it is a legend. And I think he finds it pretty much from scratch. You know, he actually needs a harbour, doesn't he? He needs a harbour on the North African coast that's not part of Egypt. You know, the, the old priestly elite. He needs to distance himself from that. And I think that's how Alexandria came about. So this is in 331 BC. And he's conquered most of the Near East by this stage. And he's conquered Egypt. He's been crowned in Memphis, which is the ancient capital of Egypt, as Pharaoh. But he wants a city that can control Egypt from the coast and obviously have shipping links to the Mediterranean world and beyond. And he chooses this site. It's a kind of narrow bar of land between the Mediterranean Sea and it's on a lake called Mariotis. And it provides... It provides an amazing complex of deep water harbours. You know, that's the key reason that he chooses this particular site. It's also got the winds that blow in off the lake and the winds that blow in off the sea. So in the summer, it's actually a very cool place to be. And that's also very important. And it's a landscape of actually dazzling artificiality. So it's kind of a grid system. The, the Alexandria is designed on a grid system. And I was talking to about, someone about this the other day. Um, I was actually talking about um, how in America, no matter what city you're in, but if you use New York as an example, uh, people will tell you, oh, just go out into the street and turn north. I'm like, how do you know where north is? But Americans, North Americans, you know, Canadians and Americans seem to know exactly where that is. Uh, and it's and it's because cities are laid out on a grid system. And Alexandria was laid out like a grid system, exactly like New York. And it was all laid out personally by Alexander. And after Alexander's death, it gets appropriated by his childhood friend and lieutenant, Ptolemy, who grabs Alexander's body. He brings it to Alexandria and he buries it there. So the tomb of Alexander is actually kind of a marker of the Ptolemy's claim to be the true successor of the great conqueror himself. And of course, there are other wonders there as well. There's the Pharos, this massive, and it's difficult to, to put it into, into context, but this massive lighthouse, you know, if we're using New York as an example, probably about the, the same size and height as the Empire State Building. And this lighthouse, this great lighthouse is built on an island. It's kind of joined to the mainland, and this is one of the largest buildings ever built by the Greeks. It's the first city, Alexandria is the first city to have numbered street addresses, which I think is an absolutely wonderful detail. Alexandria also had slot machines. It had automatic doors on its temples. It had international banks. So Alexandria is an incredible place. It's a, there's no other place like it at this particular moment in time anywhere else in the world. It's a place of wonders. And the wonders, in a sense, have to be built partly because Ptolemy is trying to establish this very powerful new regime as the inheritor of both the pharaonic greatness of Egypt and of the great empire that was conquered by Alexander before. But it's also because it's an upstart city and upstart cities need to attract people. They have to have something that people will go to. And it needs to have things that people want to come and see, more importantly. So kind of like a Dubai or a, or a Vegas, you know, somewhere like that. But it's also got this slight air of one of those planned capitals like Brasilia or, 
you know, somewhere, somewhere very similar to that, you know, that are established. And the Ptolemies actually get top architects to come in and they build up all these fantastic things. And I, I know it sounds silly to some people that I actually started this podcast with a, a quote from a video game, but that video game, Assassin's Creed, is set in Alexandria. And it actually gives a lot of meaning to to the archaeologists who actually worked on the game. And it does give a wonderful sense of the layout of the city, the sheer spectacle and the sheer grandeur of it, which I can't get across to you in this podcast. And if you if you get a chance, get the video game and actually have a look at it, because it's something that was based on on reality. And it's quite simply mind blowing. And the very fact that it has a desert landscape or this, you know, kind of scrubby landscape on the edge of the desert, I think it makes the, the city of Alexandria quite extraordinary. Is it Dubai that has the extension of the Louvre? I think it is. And I think it's also the Saudis that bought the, the last Leonardo, uh, didn't they? So there's, there's this sense, even now, that by investing in culture, you're actually boosting the prestige of your city. And that is actually very, very Ptolemaic. So the Ptolemies are all about kind of boosting trade, you know, boosting the idea of Alexandria as a great trading capital, because that then raises finance. They also have the money from Egypt. They have the loot that they get from, you know, kind of foreign conquests. There's a lot of money going around in Alexandria at this time, purely because of the Ptolemies. And just like the oil shakes in the Gulf, Ptolemy is in a position to spend. And, and like the oil shakes, he recognizes that culture is something that can boost his prestige. You know, this is a kind of tradition in the Greek world of autocrats. So Sisterus, who was the tyrant in Athens before the establishment of the democracy, he actually sponsors the drama festivals that will culminate in the great, great tragedians and comedians of the Athenian Golden Age. And he sponsors a kind of standard edition of Homer. You know, kings of Macedon, likewise, you know, were, were very conscious that they were looked down on by the Athenians and by other peoples of kind of classical Greece. And so they're very keen on inviting intellectual luminaries to their court. So one of the, the Macedonian kings invites uh, Euripides, the great Athenian tragedian, to go and stay with him. I mean, isn't that amazing that you have the, the power and the ability to do just that? And Philip, who's the, the father of Alexander, he famously employs Aristotle, you know, the, the philosopher of his age. And so Ptolemy is very much the heir to this. You know, he knows this history. But it's precisely because he's now thinking on a global scale. He thinks of Alexandria on a global scale and he knows he's creating something that will never have been created before. You know, he has actually ridden with Alexander the Great. You know, he's seen the limits of the earth. But it seems to me that his ambitions are much greater than simply to employ, you know, a playwright or a philosopher of two. He wants to do more, much, much more than that. He wants the greatest conglomeration of texts and philosophers that money can buy him. And I think it's worth saying about Ptolemy, by the way, that he's a very clever man. You know, he writes a memoir of his time with Alexander. This has never been done before. And it's very clear that he adores him. And he is incredibly literate and he is incredibly shrewd and he's an intelligent man. 
And I don't think you have to be cynical about it. I mean, maybe he probably really does like the idea of scholarship and learning and, and, and all these things. And I don't think that he would see any tension between it. I mean, he doesn't see that promoting his own brand and his own city is is anything to apologize for. And why should he? I mean, he's all in favor of that. But I think he genuinely does believe in this kind of in a, in a kind of radical concept of learning for learning's sake. And, you know, that's actually what differentiates him from someone like Ashurbanipal, who I mentioned earlier on. Ashurbanipal's library is all about the ability to look into the future, to, to read bad omens and so on. And I think for Ptolemy, it's... You know, it's about a sense of preserving everything that is best about Greek culture. But also, he too has been educated by Aristotle because that's where he and Alexander met. You know, they'd actually studied together with Aristotle in that particular grove where Aristotle gathered these amazing, you know, lads from the court around him. So absolutely, I think Ptolemy was influenced in the same way that Alexander was. And Aristotle is actually a key figure in this because he has done his tutoring in Macedon and he then moves back to Athens and he settles into a temple dedicated to Apollo called the Lyceum. And this is a well-known venue where philosophers go and talk. So Socrates has gone there and Plato has gone there. But Aristotle actually found something that is kind of more enduring and more ambitious. You know, the Lyceum is basically a research center or what we would think of as a, as a research center today. The reason that he actually needs a research center is because he's committed to this idea that we have to love wisdom, which is what philosophers by definition do. You have to train the mind and the skills that enable you to assess the laws that govern not only your universe, but the universe. And you can only do that over the course of an entire lifetime. It doesn't happen in a day or a week or a year. And, and we see this over the centuries. So there needs to be a kind of concentrated opportunity for philosophers to ponder and read and research and write and chat among their peers, because otherwise they're not adequately going to be able to fathom what actually makes the universe tick. And let's just take a short break for a message from our sponsor. Altadomus is your one-stop shop for your Malaysia My Second Home visa. But they are much more than that. When you sign up with Autodomus, you become part of a larger community, a community that cares about you in Malaysia. And that's important when you move to a new home. So for more information, call Autodomus or WhatsApp them on plus six zero one two four nine three seven two seven zero or visit their website www.penangmyhome.com. And we are back. So Plato has a great theory on realism, and that theory is that Platonic realism states that the visible world of particular things is a shifting exhibition, like shadows cast on a wall by the activities of their corresponding universal ideas or forms. So effectively, if you want to know the essence of a table, that's what you have to access rather than kind of making a survey of every table that is in existence. Does that make sense? And Aristotle has a slightly different perspective. 
He thinks you really do need to have a kind of totalizing sense of the entire world to, to make those decisions. And I think he's an encyclopedist, but he's more than an encyclopedist. He's an empiricist. He's about, I don't know, if you, if you want to fathom the scope and sweep of the animal kingdom, you actually have to get your hands dirty. You can't do it from afar. And he actually slices open the, uh, the, the stomach of a dead elephant to investigate what's inside. He doesn't just read about it and believe it. He actually wants to see it and do it. You know, he cuts up a cuttlefish, or actually hundreds of cuttlefish. You know, he famously seems to have investigated the... <laughs> I find this bizarre. But again, I understand why he did it. But the, the semen of Indians and Ethiopians to actually discover whether, as Herodotus actually said, it was black. And, of course, he demonstrates that it wasn't. <laughs> so in every sense, hands-on fun research. <laughs> but, but Aristotle is also interested in the range of different political systems across the world. So he actually compiles a great glossary, you know, a, an analysis, if you like, of all the different democracies of oligarchs and whatever else is, you know, going on at that particular time. And, but this is an incredible record. But of course, he has to have somewhere to keep this record. He's also employing all kinds of people to, to do this. And the Lyceum is basically a kind of a complex where all these people can actually not just gather on a daily basis, but they can also live. So there's actually living quarters uh, for the philosophers and the scribes. There's a kind of communal dining center and there's porticoed walkways. And it's where you kind of walk around this kind of cloister, you know, chattering away to your, to your fellow philosophers. Pretty much like the cloisters at, at Oxford and Cambridge universities. And the philosophers who go to the Lyceum and who follow, you know, Aristotle's footsteps are known as peripatetics after this cloister. And the thing is, this may sound like a kind of contemporary modern day research center. And to, to a degree, it actually is. But it's also a cult center. And this center is sacred to the muses, who are the nine sisters, who are the patrons of all the, of all the various kinds of academic and literary disciplines. And so this lyceum, this research center that Aristotle established, is known as a museon, a temple to the muses, which is anglicized much later to museum. So that's actually lurking in the background, I think. Now, what happens when you transplant that idea to a city as immense as Alexandria? Well, we've been talking about how Alexandria is artificial and that it has no roots. You know, previously in a city like Athens or cities in Ionia where philosophy begins, the philosophers are drawing on the cultures in the traditions of those cities that they belong to. But in Alexandria because it's a new city, these don't exist. And what's more, you know, the Macedonian domination of the Greek world means that these traditions are slightly in abeyance and are in deep freeze. So there are all kinds of scholars who are drifting around just waiting to be scooped up by a wealthy patron. And when they come together, their perspective inevitability is going to be cosmopolitan. It has to be. It can't be anything else. And that cosmopolitanism, which is absolutely bred of the age of Alexander and his conquests, that I think is the essence of the great library of Alexandria. That is what the library is bringing to the city.
What's interesting for me is when I was researching Caesar and Cleopatra, and I was reading all these books on, you know, Cleopatra, the scholarly, you know, kind of books, I mean, you know, they themselves actually differ on whether the, the library is actually part of the museum or not. And actually, they're not really certain on what the museum actually is. So then I had to think about that and I had to think about what it was. And I think I'm actually certain on what the museum actually is, because what we have is actually a relatively detailed description of it by Strabo, the geographer, in the year of Augustus. And it's pretty definitive. He says that the museum is part of a great palace complex called the Precomon. So it was part of the fabric of this enormous complex of buildings in which the Ptolemies live. And it's in the old quarter of the city palace complex. And it's huge. Strabo actually says this, that it's the biggest, the biggest gathering of buildings that he's ever seen. And Strabo actually says that it possesses a peripatoc. So the, uh, the colonnade, like, you know, the, the Lyceum had in Athens, but that it has a columned hall and it has a dining room, which the Lyceum had. And in the hall, the men who are the members of the museum, you know, they meet commonly to dine and to, to chat. So again, rather like the, the fellows in an Oxford or a Cambridge college. And it actually, when I, was, when I was reading through that, it actually sounded to me very much like All Souls College, which I'd actually, I've spoken about on other podcasts, which is famously dedicated to research and has no students. <laughs> That's the amazing thing about All Souls. There's actually no students. But All Souls is actually set in delightful surroundings, you know, and there's free food and there's people to wait on you, you know, kind of hand and foot. And, you know, you don't have to do any of your own housework. Um, and I think that is what the Lyceum was. And I think that is what the Library of Alexandria became for the scribes and the philosophers who gathered there. And of course, when you read about the, the Library of Alexandria, there's a repeated emphasis on the food and the wine that you get. And there's definitely a sense of jealousy on, you know, the parts of those who aren't there, who aren't admitted. And there's a kind of celebrated satirical comment on it by a guy called Timonophiles, who clearly had not been offered a scholarship to the museum, who says... In the land of Egypt, where they jabber in a whole range of languages, many now find the rest home as royally funded hacks, endlessly quarreling at the birdcage of the muses. <laughs> what I love about that is, is that, that was said almost 3,000 years ago, but it's the, the essence of that translation is exactly as it would be today. <laughs> What I love about that is that it translates beautifully into today's world. And it's obviously, you know, written by someone who has been refused entry. And that's him having a go. So the man in charge of the museum is a priest appointed by the king. And it seems from Strabo's description that the museum is directly contiguous to the tomb of Alexander. And I think that's very important. It's actually right next to it. And part of the same complex, I suspect. And it may be that the model for this is actually coming from, you know, Pharaonic Egypt. So, you know, the tomb of Ramesses II, which the Greeks were, you know, very, very interested in, which has supposedly had a, a cult center attached to it with lots of books and, you know, and obviously the tomb and, 
and it was all part of one complex. And I think this comes from that. So maybe that's the kind of direct inspiration for it. But the question that is hanging here as well is, well, what about the library? Because Strabo doesn't mention the library exactly. And this is a puzzle. Now, most scholars, I think, by and large, have assumed that the library is a separate building from the museum. And there is definitely a, a post of chief librarian who is also tutor to the, the Ptolemy crown prince. So there, there's definitely a sense that there are a large number of books or scrolls or clay tablets somewhere in this complex. I mean, there's no question about that. So therefore, the question is, where are the where are the books and the tablets and the scroll and the scrolls? And I think the most convincing explanation for this is in a book called The Vanished Library by the Italian scholar Luciano Canafora, who argues that Strabo doesn't mention the library for the simple reason that it did not constitute a separate room or building. And there is evidence for this in the argument given by the author of Ptolemaic Alexandria, P.M. Fraser, the kind of great definitive volume on it, who points out that the Library of Alexandria, the Museum of Alexander, I should probably say, inspires a kind of copycat example in Pergamum, which is another capital in what's now Turkey. And there, there are sufficient remains for archaeologists to reconstruct the floor plan, and there is no separate library in that complex. So that implies almost certainly that the library is not a separate building as we thought. And I think that's what makes this such a convincing argument is that the original word for library in Greek is actually the shelves on which books are kept. So I think what that suggests is that you have this kind of museum complex and you have shelves and scrolls that are kept on the shelves and they are part of the structure of the general complex. And that therefore, what comes to be called the library is a feature that is kind of running throughout the museum itself. And although it's my argument, it's the best that I can come up with, with everything that I've read on the subject. But it does raise one objection. In the video game, <laughs> and I'll go back to that, that I mentioned at the beginning, Assassin's Creed Origins, the scholars who worked on that game based the design for it on an actual existing library, one that we know existed, very famous, one of the most famous Roman remains, which is the library of Celsius in Ephesus. Now, that's quite a bit later. So that's in, when was that? That would be about 92 AD. So that's actually a Roman building. It's not a Greek building. But we know that therefore... In a Greek-speaking area of the Roman Empire, in an area that undoubtedly would have had trade links with Alexandria, that there were separate libraries. And I think that's really important. There is also a possibility, surely, then, given that so many records of Alexandria are lost, that there could have been a separate building. Though the Romans are a bit envious of, you know, the cultural prestige of the Greek world. And so they actually start amassing vast collections of books themselves. And... And Egypt, actually, because it's providing, you know, Parapus becomes a great, great center of the book trade. You know, huge numbers of copies are made um, in Alexandria and Egypt, and they're actually sent back to Rome. You know, the capital itself, of course, 
which has the largest number of libraries anywhere in the world. And of course, you, you also have one in Herculeum. You know, very famously, there's a villa there with all kinds of manuscripts that people stream and are deciphering and copying. So the Roman library, I think, is different from the kind of library that is being set up at the age of the, the first Ptolemies, you know, more self-conscious in a way. It's more self-aggrandizing. It's the kind of nouveau riche. Ptolemy is a absolutely, you know, the nouveau riche. And they were Macedonians. So they were the heirs to the tradition of cultural sponsorship that was practiced by the kings. And they are pretty much direct heirs to the traditions in Athens that Aristotle embodied. So that's all very interesting. And I think there is a difference there. And I think that the libraries that you get in both Imperial Rome and in the provinces, I think those libraries, by that point, the idea of a library is kind of a a distinct building that you construct essentially to kind of show off how much learning you actually have. And that can be done by individuals or it can be done on a civic basis like the, the library in Alexandria. So at this stage, let me tell you what is in the amazing library and I think also how it came to be destroyed. So picture yourself in the library of Alexandria and people have this fantasy of it as the repository of all the world's wisdom. All kinds of scientific discoveries are happening, you know, thanks to the books in the library. You know, the scholars who work in the museum, you know, they're pushing the boundaries of knowledge. And then actually there's this very, very common view, which you see repeated in kind of, you know, popular histories and things which is that with the loss of the Library of Alexandria, which was destroyed for reasons that I'll go into, the world was suddenly plunged into darkness, that this was the cause of the science setback. But how much truth is actually in that theory? So, look, I think there are two elements to that. There's the idea that the Library of Alexandria alone contains absolutely everything, and therefore its loss cripples the world so much that we're actually plunged back into the Dark Ages, and that if it hadn't happened, then history would have been set on a far greater, smoother progress towards, I think, industrialization and spaceships and cures for cancer and, you know, all that kind of incredible stuff. So this idea that the Library of Alexandria is kind of a scientific research center, that it's like an ancient, I don't know, an, an ancient MIT or, you know, Silicon Valley or something like that. The truth about the Library of Alexandria is that its focus is overwhelmingly literary and it's Greek. And this is the truth. So the scholars who are actually in the library seem to have seen as their mission essentially the, the rescue of a vast mass of Greek literature. And they're doing this as people have basically, you know, emancipated themselves from the city politics of classical Greece. And therefore, they actually have a sense of the entirety of the writings of Greece. Greece was everything at this particular moment in time. And they're anxious. I think that, you know, amid all the wars that have actually plagued Greece for the past 200 years, you know, the previous 200 years, that there's every possibility that these texts will be lost. And so that's absolutely kind of a key part of it. 
And this combines with the obsession of the Ptolemies for collecting, because once you have that idea that you're going to get as many books as you can as possible, you know that's tremendously, it's going to be a, a, a tremendous amount of fun. And if you're a king with very deep pockets, which Ptolemy was, then why not? Why, why would you not do that? And so the Ptolemies sent agents out across the entire Greek world, particularly to Athens and to Rhodes, where they have the largest book markets. And they're told to buy everything they can possibly get their hands on. And the other thing that they do is that when ships dock in the harbour of Alexandria, if they're carrying books, the books are forcibly removed and they're actually marked with the slogan from the ships, put into the library, where copies are then made. I mean, imagine how long that would have taken. And then they're eventually given back to disgruntled merchants. Now, keep in mind, guys, when you copy a book, it has to be the, the circumstances for copying a book have to be absolutely perfect. You have to have the perfect writing. You have to have scholars who and scribes who can read Greek. And they're hand copying every single book that they get. So imagine if you make a mistake on that papyrus or that parchment paper. It's, it's not a case of just backtracking and wiping it out. It's starting again. So it's quite the... It takes an enormous amount of time and skill to do this. <laughs> an even better story, which is, I don't know, I think it's almost certainly not true, but, you know, make up your own minds, is that Ptolemy III wants the original copies of the plays of the three greatest Athenian tragedians, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. And he actually asked the Athenians, can I have copies of their greatest work? And they say, uh, nope. And he keeps pestering them. And finally, the Athenians say, you'll have to pay us an absolutely crippling deposit because we don't trust you. We know that you've stolen books before. You're going to do the same to us. So Ptolemy hands over the deposit and then just pockets the tragedies. And the Athenians are left red-faced with the deposit. So look, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it is a story that's kind of come down through millennium. So, I mean, this story develops clearly out of the sense that there is something faintly maniacal about the determination of the Ptolemies and their libraries to get every single text that they possibly can. And what they then do, having got all these texts, it seems is basically to establish the definitive editions of pretty much all the classical texts that we have today. And they would have been collecting everything from, you know, the Homers and the Herodotuses to Aristotle and Socrates and all the, the great Greek writers. And of course, this is actually quite an amazing achievement. I mean, it's, it's abs absolutely astonishing when you think about the time, but it's not perhaps on a level with, say, something today like, you know, curing cancer or, you know, building space rockets, which is really what I think people want to believe that was actually going on in the library of Alexandria. I don't think they were doing any of that. I think all they were doing because of the, the wealth that they had were collecting texts. And the truth is, I don't think there are any of those kind of things taking place. But I do think there were amazing discoveries and breakthroughs at the library that are not to do with literature. So the classic example of this is a calculation to an astonishing degree of accuracy of the circumference of the Earth, which is done by a scholar by the name of Eratosthenes. And Eratosthenes 
actually essentially creates the mathematical foundations of geography and cartography. So the fact that you actually have all these texts, that you can consult them, and then you can put them together to construct kind of maps of the world that are more accurate than any that had previously existed. Again, this is the fruit of, it's actually the fruit of a sense of a research institute, isn't it? And you have all of that and you, well, actually you wouldn't be able to do any of that. Let me just rephrase it. You wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to do any of that had the Ptolemies not been collecting all these great works. But it's really important to emphasize that for the Greeks, theory always triumphs over experiment. And there's a, there's a great line in Plato's Republic that I always think of in this context. Plato says, you know, when we're looking at astronomy, we must approach it as we approach geometry by way of working out problems and ignore what's actually in the sky. And I love that because it's so true. You know, it's why we have the theories of today. You know, Einstein's theory of relativities, you always have to look at the maths, you can't look at the sky. So in other words, the mass of astronomy is what really matters. You know, the, the pinpricks of light in the sky are actually completely irrelevant. However, all of that being said, we do know that they have coin-operated slot machines, amazingly. They do have automatic doors. They do have steam engines, you know, practical inventions. But what they don't do is apply any of those to what we, we would recognize as industrial policy. You know, the steam engines are actually just being used to power various gizmos, you know, in the in the temples that they have. They're not actually being used to, say, um, power a railway train that can actually be laid out, you know, over the desert or to go and attack enemies or anything like that. You know, Arnold Toynbee famously said that and this is one of his what ifs, had the library been technically minded, and he's obviously, you know, kind of thinking of Imperial British expeditions, you know, there at a time when he was writing it. The Library of Alexandria is not a great center of technology. That is not what it's about. And the other, I think, the other myth is that it's universal in the sense of aspiring to contain all the wisdom of the world. It didn't. Really, its its focus is completely Greek. And the reason that we have this idea that it might have been universalist because is because of a very famous myth, which is that Ptolemy II, it, it said, you know, actually wanted to know the scriptures of the Jews. So there's actually lots of Jews that have settled in Alexandria, and there's a sizable number of them which are actually being employed in the library of Alexandria. And the story goes that uh, Ptolemy II actually sends um, to Jerusalem for people. He actually sends his messengers to Jerusalem for people who can actually translate not only Greek, but Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And he has actually sent back 72 scholars, six from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're actually accommodated on the Pharos, you know, the, uh, the island with the Great Lighthouse. And they come up with a Greek translation for the Royal Library. And, and this is actually the translation of the Hebrew scripture into Greek, which is called Septuagint. 
And Septuagint comes from the Latin for 70. So it's actually a rounding down from the original 72 scholars that he was sent. But this is, as I say, it's, it's, it's a myth. It's supposedly contained in a letter written by Astraeus in the second century BC. So quite a long time after it's actually meant to have happened. It's essentially making a case for the Jews to be part of Hellenic culture in Alexandria. And he's making a pitch to the Greeks to say, look, our learning is a part of the universal corpus of human knowledge that the Ptolemies were actually interested in. But the intention of that is, I think, very palpable. So Cleopatra, we're told, I think by Plutarch, that she actually speaks Greek, Egyptian, Ethiopian, Aramaic, Syriac, Median, I think, and also Parthian and an Arabic language. And uh, which is the language of the troglodytes. And you would argue that as a Ptolemy, she learned all these languages, possibly from the scholars and the scribes who were doing the transcriptions in the library of Alexandria, wouldn't you? But you know what? In further research, the, the answer to that is actually no, because Cleopatra was most famously, uh, f- most famously famous as the first of the Ptolemies to actually speak Egyptian. But maybe that's because the because Egyptian is actually regarded as, I guess, a lower level language than some of the others. And that doesn't mean that there isn't a kind of great swirl of language going on in Alexandria. But I think it's astounding that the Ptolemies over all the generations that have been, you know, kind of looting Egypt, they never actually learned to speak Egyptian apart from Cleopatra. And Timophysis actually says that, you know, in Egypt, they jabber in a whole range of languages. And you would expect that from being a, you know, a, a port of note. So you get the impression that there's kind of multiculturalism there, that it's actually taking place. I mean, there has to be, right? But he actually dismisses it. He says that, not, that it's not even Greek, that most of the people in Egypt actually speak, you know, some kind of barbarous language. I mean, that's actually where barbarianism comes from. It actually comes from Alexandria and Greece. And it's it's someone who doesn't speak Greek. You know, they're literally saying ba-ba, 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 ba-ba. And he makes a great joke of it. But the implication there is that some of the scholars, maybe they're speaking Greek in the library, but they're actually coming from different places. And there is a kind of a, a Greek exchange. But that they're all Greek speaking? No. He also says that, and he implies that all of the scholars there, well, maybe most of the scholars are actually speaking Greek, but that they're actually coming from places in and around Greece as a kind of exchange, but that they are all Greek speaking and that they're only interested in Greek and preserving Greek documents. They're not actually interested in anything else, which you would argue about the library, they can't possibly, that that doesn't equate to universalism. But I guess to the Greeks it does. For instance, you'll note that when I was talking about Cleopatra, I didn't say that she spoke Latin, and I don't think she did because it's not recorded anywhere, which is amazing considering that two of her boyfriends are actually both Roman. So how did she then speak to them? Well, they all speak Greek because there is an assumption at this particular time that Greek is the only language that you need. 
But I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Greek is actually perceived as being the language of learning and of culture across the Mediterranean in this particular period. So basically, I think that the Library of Alexander isn't nearly as universal as people think it is. So that's essentially myth number one. The other great question is, what actually happens to it? Where does it go? And that is usually framed as, in history, as, well, who actually destroys it? You know, the assumption is that someone or some kind of great sweeping catastrophe, you know, a fire has actually wiped the library out. And of course, the favorite candidate for that is Julius Caesar. However, I'm not convinced by that. I'm not convinced that Caesar actually, I'm convinced that Caesar actually causes a fire. There's no doubt in my mind about that because he's trapped in Alexandria having you know, visited Egypt as part of the war against uh, Pompey, which I actually spoke about in my early uh, Julius Caesar podcast. And he's actually holed up and installed himself in what's supposedly the the palace court. And he ends up being, you know, kind of shacked up with Cleopatra. I'm sure there's worse people that you could get shacked up with. And he's actually fighting against her brother, isn't he? Ptolemy. And in the course of this, this big fight that, that goes down at the harbor, Caesar, it seems, if you believe the accounts, actually sets fire to his own ships to stop the enemy getting hold of them. And in the course of that, the fire spreads from the ships to the warehouses and, you know, the books there are damaged and burnt, but not the libraries. This fire is at the docks. So, yes, it's conceivable that the fire spread. But the the palace where the library was was in the old part of the city, and it would have had to have spread a hell of a long way for that to happen. So it is a little bit confusing, but the confusion is caused by Plutarch. Plutarch actually says that the libraries destroyed the libraries were destroyed in this fire. And we don't quite know where he actually gets that from because he wasn't there. Well, actually, that's not true. We do know where he gets it from because it's evident that large quantities of books were destroyed. And this is actually recorded in in a number of sources, all of which seem to go back to Livy, who is the, the greatest historian writer, who, who's actually writing very shortly after the lifetime of Julius Caesar in the reign of Augustus. And that's where we get this from. He says that there are actually warehouses, obviously down by the docks, that contain grain and books. And another detail that seems to derive from Livy is that 40,000 scrolls were actually stored there by chance, by chance. So that's actually very crucial because what he's actually saying is, you know, they're not there as part of the permanent collection, as part of the library. They just happen to be there. And why would they happen to be there? Well, because we talked earlier about this great trade in books and the taking of books, the taking of scrolls to Rome and to Italy, and because the books were being copied from the ships that they arrived on. And that's probably what this is. That's probably what that burning is. You know, Egypt is a great exporter of papyrus. And I think we have pretty conclusive proof that the library, whatever it was, whether it was part of the museum or whether it was something separate, was still in existence in the reign of Domitian, who is at the end of the first century AD. Because Suetonius, you know, he's describing a fire that sweeps Rome in Domitian's reign. And Domitian had sent scribes to Alexandria to make copies of the text that have been lost in the libraries in Rome. So there's this sense that Alexandria remains the great depository of texts. 
which is where you would go if you wanted something. So then the question is, well, if not Julius Caesar, then when? Who started the fire? Did the fire actually start at all? And the fact is that over the over the course of the the third century and into the the fourth century, you know, when the Roman world is actually being ravaged by civil war and all kinds of catastrophes, there's any number of disasters that might have actually destroyed the museum in the library itself. And of course, there's numerous cycles of destruction which takes place in the, the third and fourth century. So I would actually say that the odds on anything remaining, you know, by the end of the fourth century would have been absolutely minimal because so much, you know, wanton destruction actually took place. Not least because, you know, Alexandria is not just a city of, you know, tremendous sophistication and culture and so on, but it's actually notorious uh, in, in history as a city of mob violence, of rioting. The Alexandrians are actually famously, you know, given to um, civic disorder, and they're always burning down, you know, bits of their city, you know, and smashing things up. So I actually think it's hard to imagine that in the, in the intervening period of time, you know, from the end of the Ptolemies through to when the Roman civilization was disintegrating, that the library would have actually survived, you know, utterly unscathed, especially given that they're always having, you know, ruckuses and riots in the, in the bloody city itself. And the most famous example, you know, of mob violence actually happens in, you know, 391 AD. And that's almost a century after Constantine's, you know, conversion to Christianity. And that's when a Christian mob actually turns on, you know, the great temple of um, Serapis, who is this syncretic artificial deity, you know, who's been invented by the Ptolemies to try and provide a focus for both their Greek and Egyptian subjects. And of course, that doesn't work. And this temple is a vast and impressive building. You know, anyone who's seen the film, oh, what was that film with Rachel Weiss? Agora. You know, it's the centerpiece of that. It's, and it's brilliantly well done, by the way. And the theory is that there was a library in there, but this was either part of a part of or a subdivision or a rival to, you know, the main library of Alexandria. And that, uh, you know, there's this Christian mob that attacked the, the Serapium and destroys it. And they deliberately target the library. But I, this is a myth, you know, that basically emerges, you know, in the writings of Edward Gibbon you know, the decline and fall of the, of the Roman Empire, who has, I mean, look, he has his own reasons to present Christians as bigots, as well as the, the villains of his book. And so he actually writes, and I'll quote this verbatim, the valuable library of Alexandria was pillaged or destroyed in the 20 years after the appearance of the empty shelves excited the regret and indignation of every spectator whose mind was not totally darkened by religious prejudice. I don't actually understand the full sentence, but what he's basically saying is that, Christ, that the Christians actually burned it so that the, the, the idea that the books will be destroyed, but the shelves left. I think that's what he's saying. And I can't understand why they would destroy the, the books and leave the shelves. It would, I mean, it's a bit like thinking about the Bodleian Library and saying that they took all the books off the shelves and destroyed the books, but left the shelves. And why would you do that? But I think that's an, an idea that is immensely popular today among writers. I can't believe that the Christians would have done that. 
we have five accounts of destruction of the Serapium. So it's one of the best authenticated episodes in you know the whole history of Alexandria. Uh, but none of them actually mentioned the destruction of the library. And to the degree that classical texts have survived is down to the efforts of Christian copyists, you know, Christian scribes. And without them, we would have absolutely nothing. So no, I don't think the Christians would have done it. I also definitely don't think the Muslims did it, but they've also been fingered as the culprits. The story goes, and I've, I've researched this in numerous you know, different places, but it effectively says that the Muslims are the bad guys. So this is even, and to me, this is even more improbable. But the story is that the Arabs you know, sweep into Egypt, they lay siege to Alexandria, they capture it. The commander of the Arabs, Amwar, writes to Omar the Caliph and says, well, We've got all this. We've taken this great city. There's this enormous library there. It's full of books. What should we do with them? And then he waits. And then over a period of months, the reply comes back. If the content of the books you mentioned is in accordance with the book of Allah, we may do without them. For in that case, the book of Allah more than suffices. If, on the other hand, they contain matter not in accordance with the book of Allah, there can be no need to preserve them. Receive this message and destroy them. And I, I think clearly that's not true. The Muslims of the time had a massive respect for the legacy of Greek philosophy. They learned from it. And the reason this rumor survives is that it's in kind of accordance with what people who are very hostile to institutional religion like to imagine about it. You know, bigots who have no time for anything other than their own holy books. So I don't believe that one either. It's kind of an enlightenment myth, really. So then the question begs, do you think that there was actually one single moment when the library is destroyed? A fantasy projection, I suppose. And that actually what happened was that the library probably fell partly into disuse. You know, bits of it were perhaps burned in fires. You know, who knows? I think the collection was split up. And... But no one actually knows whether it was or wasn't. But I think it was, and I think, and I think it was an event, a slow event, a slow process of destruction that no one really kind of even notices. I think the idea of there being a dark age, you know, you want to think, well, why was there a dark age? And we've always asked this question. It's like, why were the dark ages there? And it's much more dramatic, I think, if you can blame it, on the destruction by fire of a single vast repository of learning. But actually, you know, right at the beginning of this episode, we talked about how, you know, unlike clay tablets, which survive when, you know, they're fired, papyrus is actually incredibly fragile. You know, you don't actually need a fire to destroy it, do you? If you're keeping all these, stroll, all these scrolls and they're not in air-conditioned rooms and they're not temperature-checked, and there are mice, they crumble. You know, they actually crumble when you're reading them. So, you know, unless those texts are actually being rewritten and rewritten and rewritten, they're going to fall away. They're going to be destroyed. I mean, we're actually told that the buildings of the Pallax complex was destroyed by, I think it was Aurelian. And maybe that's the final terminus for it, you know. But I suspect that most of the texts had already gone long, long before Aurelian ever destroyed 
you know, Alexandria. And actually, the person who comments most wonderfully on this is Gibbon, who, you know, as well as being an enthusiast for kinds of various enlightenment infused myths, he's actually a, a bloody good scholar. You know, he's a brilliant scholar who studied and investigated, you know, all the available sources, you know, for the narratives that he's actually telling. And he actually writes that I sincerely regret the more valuable libraries which have been involved in the ruin of the Roman Empire. But when I seriously compute the lapse of ages, the waste of ignorance and the calamities of war, our treasures rather than our losses are the object of my surprise. Don't mourn what we've lost, but celebrate what we've retained. I think that the fact that the library Alexander is no longer there is precisely what gives it its potency as a kind of mythic symbol of libraries. I think that's it. So what a wonderful story. And I actually really enjoyed telling it to you and researching it was an absolute joy. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. You know, I love the story of the Ptolemies, but you know, alas, it's their story is a very complicated one because they were always <laughs> remarrying each other. And they're all called Ptolemy, which I think is a bit of an issue. But they, they do have amusing nicknames, which I could quite happily, you know, kind of talk about in another podcast. You know, that one was called Fatty, for instance. <laughs> I love that he was called Fatty. You know, and he actually married his sister and his niece at the same time. Great stuff. Fantastic behavior. Right. On that bombshell, thank you so much for your time. That was really good fun. And guys, thanks also for listening to Rearview Mirror Chronicles. You know, I, I love that you do. Please share the podcast with your friends and I'll look forward to chatting to you next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye for now. <laughs>